Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 28 to 35, which begin with Bond asking Kareem where he can contact Tanya and end with Bond and Kareem taking a rowboat through the sewers beneath Istanbul. In between, Grant murders a Russian asset, Bond goes to his hotel, discovers his room is wired for sound, and is offered the bridal suite, and a romantic interlude between Karim and his secretary is interrupted by a bomb blast. Today we welcome author and professor Dr. Cynthia Barron, whose works include Acting Indie and Reframing Screen Performance, as well as the essay Dr. No, Bonding Britishness to Racial Sovereignty in the James Bond Phenomenon, A Critical Reader. She teaches at the Department of Theater and Film at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. And we're glad to have you back. Welcome, Cynthia. Oh, thanks. I'm excited to be here. So do you know this term head cannon? <laughs> it's not a weapon from Q Branch, but John talks about the head cannon, which is the cannon of films that we carry around in our heads. And I wondered where From Russia With Love sits in that sort of head cannon of yours of Bond films. Hmm. Um, well, I have to confess, I have a much uh, closer relationship with the book. So it's a little complicated, but um, I do feel like like this is, um, and maybe you folks have talked about this with other with other guests on the show. It's a from Russia with love is a is sort of a, a, a melancholy piece because it's uh, the last film that JFK saw. It's the last film that Ian Fleming saw. Uh, Pedro Amandaris. Uh, was diagnosed with cancer and and died in June while they were filming it. And the way that the novel ends, I mean, Bond dies, maybe, sort of. Right. So those are the things that I carry around when I, you know, when when I when the, when I think of this film. Um, that doesn't exactly explain, you know, where it fits in the the the, the canon of all the movies that I think of. Because that's an impossible question for me to even begin to answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I want to start with this uh, a digression in a way, since you mentioned the book. But there was this section that really struck me when I was reading it, and I was, and and it, and so it's Bond and Kareem here in the office talking, and Kareem says, "Has it ever occurred to you that our kind of work is rather like shooting a film?" Mm -hmm. So often I have got everybody on location and I think I can start turning the handle. Then it's the weather. Then it's the actors. Then it's the accidents. And then there's something else that also happens in the making of a film. Love appears in some shape or form at the very worst as it is now between the two stars. To me, that is the most confusing factor in this case and the most inscrutable one. Does this girl really love her idea of you? Will she love you when she sees you? Will you be able to love her enough to make her come over. That's kind of melancholy too. 
It is. It is. And it's also really indicative of of uh, Karim's character. I mean, he's very philosophical. I mean, he's a, a man of the world. And, uh, and he understands that people can be fooled and yet he's he's uh he's a a strong optimistic outgoing fellow who uh has as he said consumed many women in his life <laughs> yeah and who and who hates who hates sad eaters and sad drinkers mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's just so full of life he's really one of the best of the you know, bond allies, I think, maybe the best. Well, that's actually a question that I had for, for you folks, which is um, where in, in I mean, you, you, you guys know the, uh, the, the whole bond over in such detail. In terms of uh, allies, who is your favorite or or where does uh where does Kareem fit into the the pantheon of of allies? What do you well, think, John? I, in the, I'll I'll be honest in this particular block of minutes we're going to talk about today it, he gets some points deducted. <laughs> I don't I don't particularly like uh Kareem Ray in this uh block of minutes very much. But as an ally as far as what you're talking about uh he's great. I mean, he's cool experience you can tell he's been there before he knows the lay of the land he knows how to uh i don't know some of the advice he gives to bond seems to so level-headed and, and appropriate for what bond needs for the particular mission um i mean it's hard not to go with a, a felix lighter somewhere along the line mm. um even going modern with with jeffrey i love jeffrey wright so much it's kind of he automatically became my favorite Felix Slider, I think, just yeah. when they cast him, you know. So Felix is a tough one. It's almost like you want to say, besides Felix, who is your favorite ally, uh, maybe. But um, I don't know, Tiger Tanaka, I like him a lot, too. That's, that's, he's got, a, I got a soft spot for, uh, uh, you only live twice, so maybe I love him. that actor, Tom Bowie. Yeah. That guy's great. Yeah. So that's a good question. I don't, uh. He's a great one, though. Carbon Bay's, he's a great ally. I just, he does some things in this minute that don't, don't appeal to me very much. Well, why don't you talk about that? I'm, I'm interested. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm putting a lot of blame on him as a character, and I'm not putting any blame on the actor. But that, that scene with the secretary that we're going to talk about today is just grating to me. Like, I just really don't enjoy that scene when it comes up. And, uh, uh, Everything from the way she kind of whines his voice over and over again, this whole idea about sleeping with your secretary is going back to the salt mines and all that is just really grating to me. Uh, I don't know how much more to say about it. It's just distasteful. I, I have I have things to say about it, but I want to wait until we get to those minutes. So okay. so let's let's just for a second um, <laughs> back up just a tiny little bit in terms of of kareem in this in this scene i do want to i would add just to answer your question cynthia i actually have a pretty soft spot for mathis but i don't know whether that's because it's giancarlo giannini and he's just so damn good and charismatic because we really don't know very much about him as a character but i i like him as well as as kareem well those are all those are all really interesting choices um i um i was just uh i think struck by the uh the novel where uh, the way uh, Bond talks about Kareem, and um, I mean, I'd have to go back and 
read all the other novels to see how the other allies are described. But um, the way he, the way Bond talks about Kareem is really quite amazing and describing that he, he could, uh, you know, see him as a friend and that, um, you know, he talks about having great affection for him and talks about even essentially loving him just the way he loves M. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And then feels really, really remorseful when uh, Kareem is killed. I was struck by all that. So it's really, I, I was really struck by that in the novel and it doesn't translate to the film. So let's talk, let's, yeah. Anyway. But, but I, I would like to add to that though. I, I do feel like he's afforded way more respect than um, Quarrel, for example, even though both mm -hmm. are, you know, mixed blood, there's some English blood there. And so there's a, there's a, 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 a kinship that way, but somehow there's just a respect for Kareem that is really palpable, I think, in, in both the movie and in the mm -hmm, book. Mm -hmm. Well, Mitch, you seem like you have a plan for us. Do you want to get us started? <laughs> well, yeah, just, I just kind of wanted to start, I guess, with, with since we're in this scene of these two people talking, and so anything's open, we can talk about, we can talk about the actor, we can talk about performance. Uh, I just wanted to say, structurally, I think it's interesting that from a point of view of adaptation, in the book, this, there is basically one long conversation that Bond has with Kareem, and then they go off to, to go under the ground to the sewers and have a look uh, at the Russian consulate. But we break it up in this in this film into a couple of incidences, and I was and so I thought that was kind of interesting that that in terms of expanding the narrative, Bond really has nothing to do until Tanya shows up and that's kind of what he asks you know well, well what's the plan with her and it's like well it's up to her so it's really interesting how that basically eliminates any drive for bond at this point so the narrative kind of takes over and we get to see what what the other guys are up to and then we're going to have some <laughs> some hotel check-ins and some other business before we finally get back to the back end of the scene i just thought structurally it's interesting that the filmmakers screenwriters just broke the scene in half and then put a bunch of stuff in between yeah. That, that all makes sense. Well, I mean, particularly, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as extreme in the, in the film, but it's, it's, it's really extreme in the novel where the first hundred pages, Bond doesn't even show up. And the next hundred pages is him hanging around with Kareem. Yeah. <laughs> and then the final hundred pages is finally, okay, now something's going to start to happen. And even there he's, Bond is incredibly passive. It's a it's a very strange piece, actually. I guess I should just ask, in terms of this this sequence, um, you ended the the twenty eight minute mark begins sort of during their conversation. So, um, what did you folks talk about um, concerning the conversation between Bond and uh, and Kareem? We haven't said much, very much about it at all. Uh, we know that we we talked a little bit about Bond's reacting to the strange ways that things are done here in Istanbul, and a, and a little bit about sort of the the gregarious nature of of the character of Karim Bey. But um, I'm welcome to if you've got something you wanted to talk about the preceding part of the conversation, please do. Well, I guess I was just struck with how Armandaris is able to pretty well capture the character as as written um, as someone who's both 
uh, very strong, but also incredibly friendly. As someone who's, uh, who's, who's, who's really seen it all, we've talked about that. He's very open, and, uh, and yet he's also commanding. Uh, it's a really interesting balance. I also like that, um, that the two of them, uh, the two men, while they get to be uh, at the desk together, are, are dressed really essentially the same in their uh, tailored gray suits with their white pocket handkerchiefs, and, and uh, they're both well-tanned, and they have deep resonant voices, and they've got their white shirts and their black ties, and so they're, they're, they're on the job. I mean, these are, they're, this is sort of their, their work clothes. And I, I really like that aspect of, of the way the film conveys it, that this is business. Um, what did you guys make of their, just sort of their appearance and the, the costuming and so forth? I think it's a real reflection of, again, just the kind of good taste of Terrence Young. And I even think that as a novelist, I think that Fleming is really casting his words into Karim Bey and kind of projecting a version of himself, you know, a more exotic version and at times a more outrageous, outlandish version, but, but you know, someone who's very opinionated and controlled. And so there's that weird nexus where it feels like, it feels like Ian Fleming and it feels like Ter Terrence Young also smashed up together, you know? Hmm. Yes. But elegance and class and, and, you know, I love the fact that in the book, he has blue eyes, you know, it's like that's the English part of him showing through. So there's just something about the way that he's presented uh, in, in both films that add this era, this level of sort of elegance, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And building off the elegance of, of Karen Bay, we get the follow up to the coffee order. We did discuss the coffee and the specifics of Turkish coffee. And as I said, it was they, they take great pride in in making those specific cups of coffee a certain way. And then they bring them in in a in a lovely like hanging tray it's so specific and uh I, I like you know it's great bond stuff bond trope if you will to have these specific regional things always offered up to him mm -hmm. and uh i love i love how uh elegant that is the way the guy comes in with that tray it's beautiful yeah and i think the fact that bond takes his cigarettes you know was we talked a little bit about that mm -hmm. too that he accepts he welcomes the offer of cigarettes versus, you know, it's a little different in Dr. No. He's suspicious and he's offered different choices, but he'd rather have his own. Right. Yeah, well, these two have just decided to be friends immediately, which I think is, I think is interesting. I do think when, once the coffee comes in and Amandaris stands up to hand Connery the coffee, he then tells him um, something like, my friend, if you, if you want my advice, you'll stay with us a few days and then you'll go home. Um, I thought that was really, uh, I mean, it's an, it's, it's an interesting moment. He's, he's standing and so that gives him a certain kind of authority and yet his voice is very soft. So it's very much a premonition that things are going to go wrong, <laughs> very wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sort of reminds us of the um, a very, very much, much, much calmer Lambert from Alien, right? Where we're getting this little warning like, hey, this is not going to work out the way you want it to. Maybe it's best to just cut and run. Obviously, he uh, takes a different approach than she did. But yeah, you're. this is the best advice. I, it it kind of speaks to something that always confuses me about this movie. 
is the the idea that it's a well known to be a trap but yet they'll still take the chance because they want to get this decoding machine well if it's a trap they're not going to get the decoding machine right i mean is that really is that really a possibility uh, if they're just if it's all set up to trap you they're not going to let you have the thing are they uh, you would think but uh you know the movie does what it does but i always wonder like why did they take him up on this uh, because of that British pride that they talked about earlier, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's what, that's what um, is so interesting in the novel, where he really laments his, his conceit. Uh, it just, it really, it really strikes me that it's, a, it's, an, it's a very interesting piece. And, and the film and the novel are just two different creatures, it seems to me, but, which is all fine. But they're two they're two creatures that are in conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can look at a adaptation of a book and there's not much to talk about one way or the other. Um, but this is a really fascinating way that they they even move you know they move lines around. They find lines that they like in the book and they put them in a different character's mouth. You know, I think that's really really interesting. Well, absolutely, yeah, and that's certainly one instance which we'll get to when uh, when Bond comes to yeah. comes to visit. Uh, Kareem after the explosion. Um, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the choice of uh, dissolve out of this scene. And there's another dissolve later. And then there's this curious and wonderful little vertical wipe. Yeah, I know. With, 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 <laughs> the wipe is something. I with love it. With, <laughs> but love with the sound it. of Venetian blinds. I mean, I watched it multiple that- times to make sure. And there's a... When that thing happens, yeah, it sounds like a it sounds like a zipper to me. <laughs> it's <just> so weird. <laughs> almost like the first. It's almost like the first bit of a slide whistle note that they cut off short. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> Cynthia, if you get John and 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 me talking about trans optical transitions, this will never end. Yes. Yeah, well, we love. I we have, have, have suspected that. So, well, we also have to talk about. Uh, all the re-recording but but for oh, now yeah for sure yeah but for now just the the dissolve i mean he just yeah. so kareem says you know you should just go home and then there's this dissolve which immediately immediately then goes to um the car that's being driven by um or bonds being driven then it's followed by the car driven by grant mm-hmm. i thought that was very cool We've got that great music cue that really helps it along. It's like, oh, yeah, we're in a James Bond movie because there's the James Bond theme. Exactly. Well, I think also I think they were very concerned with all the exposition going on here. And they're like, oh, let's just load in some music. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, Mitch, if if we're breaking down the script structurally, where are we here? We're, did we not just reach the end of a sequence? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. I think I, that's yeah. what I think is so interesting is that they take the beginning of the office and then they build a whole sequence out of it that ends back in the office again. I just think it's kind of I think that's very right. interesting. Well, I think that that's instinctual. Like I'll find myself doing that in writing. Sometimes I'll put in a transition, a dissolve or something when I feel like I'm moving from one sequence to the other. A lot of times I'll cut it out because I'm like, well, I don't need to point at that in the script. But uh, it's a feeling I get, I think an innate sense I get where I want to do something different at the end of a sequence just to indicate to the reader or to the, in this case, it would be to the viewer that we're at the end of a sequence and moving into a new one. So that could be the explanation for the dissolve. I think it's kind of a classic film uh, technique that's used quite often. But but here's the other thing that, that complicates it and makes it even more interesting from a screenwriting point of view. 
So, mm-hmm. I, so you know, I have this theory that there, there's only two kinds of cuts in a movie. One kind is a continuation cut where the action, you know, or storyline or whatever continues from scene to scene. And the other is a reorientation cut. You know, a meanwhile, back mm-hmm. at the ranch, we're going to take you over here. So even though the scene, the sequence is, you know, arguably ending, this dissolve is is a kind of it's a continuation dissolve, right? Because it because right. we're still following Bond and we're still we're still moving along. So there hasn't been some big reorientation, uh, even though we've started a new sequence, which is one of the things that makes it mm-hmm. kind of and it's kind of responding to what Karen Bay just said. Mm-hmm. He's saying, "Hey, maybe you shouldn't hang out here," and like we already uh, like Cynthia already. Uh, said you know that's kind of a warning uh that that this isn't going to go well and then we what do we cut to uh, clearly things aren't going well for uh our our agent that's been following them around peacefully following them around in a cold mm-hmm. war fashion now he's tied up in the back of the car and uh his days are numbered so i think that it is it's kind of having uh it's kind of a call and response in a way mm-hmm. uh, yeah, between sure. the two scenes so the dissolve is kind of funny because I think I would have done a hard cut to the inside of Red Grant's car, maybe if I really wanted to drive that point home. But uh, it's it's an interesting choice. There's also maybe they left in, you know, the cars because they still want to get the second hand Rolls Royce worked in there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's for part sure. Of the, mm-hmm. Yeah. Production you know, they, value. they spent they spent the money. They're going to put yeah. it into the production, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, w- I would also note that that is Bob Simmons that's tied up back there in the back seat. Um, Simmons was Connery's stunt double and he was the stunt coordinator on Dr. No, I think kind of out of necessity because they didn't have any money. And they, they went ahead and hired a different stunt coordinator for From Russia With Love. But because he's Connery's double, he's still going to show up and still be involved in any of the action scenes that involve Connery. So there's just a piece of trivia there. That's about, interesting. About who's tied up. So is he also, the, so then he's also the person who flops out of the, yeah. the back seat. Right. Cool. In, in, in what's pretty clearly an insert shot, I think. I, I, I don't think that's, I think, that, right. I think that's, they caught that back at Pinewood. Mm. Uh, but, but I think it's also interesting that he has sort of graduates from being just, Connery's double uh, to eventually becoming the chief, you know, stunt coordinator for the, I think he, I think he started on Thunderball and then went on for several films after that uh w- whether Connery was there or not uh, coordinating the the stunt and the action scenes along with John Steers and the special effects team but he started out auditioning as James Bond and uh, he got didn't win the part but he won the part of being Connery's double and stuntman so it's kind of interesting how he found his way into the franchise and of course that's him and the gun barrel in both the first two films before or first three films before Thunderball and Connery would actually do it that's right yes thanks didn't know that didn't know that that was him tied up there um that that couldn't be pleasant you know you've got the (laughs) duct tape over your mouth and you're squished in the seat yeah Uh, it's probably hot (laughs) it's it's better than having a tarantula crawling all over you though probably maybe (laughs) you know we were talking about the sequences having you know a lot of business in it exposition and so forth as it goes through, I was really struck by the fact that Taken as a whole, this 28 to 35 minute segment, really struck me as um, this is a, a real uh, Cold War advertisement um, 
that this is um, suggesting that Bond and his allies are cool and everyone else is not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just because of, you know, you've got, you know, you've maybe it's the music. Um, it has to do with how um, Bond and Armandaris move. Um, then when they, uh, when Bond gets to the um, hotel, the driver, who is presumably one of uh, Kareem Bay's sons, is very snappy. And just the way Bond enters the hotel, just his walk is just, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. Do you know? I mean, it's light yeah. and it's purposeful. And he's just, he you, you can't take your eyes off of him. Everyone else just is sort of, I don't know, small and twisted and... Um, Frankly, they're all sort of stooped over, and they're smaller than him. And yeah, you're totally right. And right. and of course, the the female in the scene can't take her eyes off of him. She's just again, it's like almost they they sort of replay that moment from Doctor No, where the female concierge is just, just like <laughs> like eating him alive with her eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get that again. So and they're using the same music cue from Doctor No. That's what's so weird is you've got this beautifully yeah. reorchestrated. Thank God for John Barry redoing everything. And then it fades out, and then he walks into the hotel room, and they drop in the old recording of Dr. No and just let it play and play and play, as if to say, remember... This is yeah. that cool that cool James Bond. Remember the last one? Or this is what the last one sounded like. You know, we're still there. <laughs> well, this is well. This is the other part of this block of minutes that just kind of drives me crazy. I I can't stand when they just let the whole Bond song play all the way to the end through a scene. It doesn't really fit the scene. Of course, you not. know it's 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 a drag it because didn't it's fit like the other come on, either. you got John Barry. You got John Barry. He doesn't have to Mickey Mouse the scene or anything, but he can at least uh, score the scene properly. I don't know why you have to just play this old recording of it. I mean, I bet the producers demanded it. I bet they just said, "No, John, we're going to use the we're going to use the the James Bond theme here all all the way to that reverb guitar at the end." Yeah, yeah. Play the whole thing. It's a hit. (laughs) People are buying. We're selling records of it. And Barry didn't like it. I think he said that uh, in Dr. No, he was mortified at how many times they just kept dropping it in. And so he probably, if he had his preferences, I'm sure he would have continued the score in the reorchestrated fashion. Maybe. I don't know. What do I know? It just, yeah, the the music, you know, once he enters the the room just seems lazy. I mean, and it, it sort of goes... It you know it becomes a little bit louder and then it then it becomes yeah. quieter <laughs> and then when you you know um, sees the listening device then it comes up and it's just like this is really hokey and odd and he's yeah. he's definitely re- reacting to the bugs and things differently than in Doctor No which is kind of interesting so you've got the very same music but you've got a be- very different James Bond in in how he's not surprised and really dominating the situation. He even throws his hat on the bed, which is totally bad luck. Yeah, we got to talk about that because he even uh, he even considers it for a minute. So yeah, you can he tell does, even he's he? thinking he's even he, he's right, even well, thinking I don't I shouldn't do this. Bring it right? on. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> to your worst luck. I really appreciate you folks pausing at that moment because it just that between the between him putting his things on the bed and then pausing with uh, before he drops his hat on the bed and then the cough from the porter and the way then um, 
Connery shoves the money in his pocket and takes the key. That is just all so awkward and uh, I, I, I don't know. There's something. <laughs> it's There's really, something... I think it's kind of belligerent, all of it. Okay. Like, in the best sense, you know, he's he's kind of, you know, yeah, here's your tip and get out. You know, <laughs> I don't know. There's something about him that's very devil may care. You know? No, I appreciate it makes it's sort of the thuggish bond, you know. Um, yeah. I OK, I I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. I'm. Can you talk? Can we talk about the room? That room does not say Istanbul to me. It says Pinewood <laughs> <laughs> Studios. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, I just so this thought is it was supposed to be the odd. the Crystal Palace Hotel is the name of the hotel, and is it just supposed to be kind of an anglicized hotel? Is that the idea? Maybe that it's I, I don't know why you would want to do that, but is it like a British hotel in Istanbul? I don't know. I'm just looking for a reason if for it why. Is, it's yeah, crawling I mean, with spies. <laughs> it, it, exactly, and it's I I mean I got to ask. You cut this scene out of the movie. Nothing's lost, right? Like I just don't quite get what the scene well, is the, for. No, it's other the, than it's the bed switcheroo. It's the it's the room yeah. switcheroo. Yeah, which is, so you got to have. I mean, yeah, well, why the switcheroo though? Why not well, just have the room? Okay, so here's how it works in the book. In the book, they okay. call and say uh, the room we had booked for you, or they say to him the room we have booked to you has plumbing problems, and we got to move you no. to somewhere else. And um, and so they say. Uh, the bridal suites available or something like that. And mm-hmm. Bond thinks to himself, oh yeah, this is probably a trap, but okay, whatever they want me to do. Again. In, in, again. <laughs> but in the movie, it's kind of great because he thinks that he's discovered the bugs. So he's ahead of them. He wants the new room. They say, okay, well, we'll move you to the bridal suite. And then we realize, no, actually they're ahead of Bond because because this is exactly what they have planned. And so it's great. It gives agency to the character on one hand for Bond to make a decision and think he's, you know, and then it gives agency to the audience in terms of suspense because we're like, oh no, we, we know more than he does. Those are, those are, yeah, those are all really good points. Um, the only other reason to, uh, to keep the, the only other reasons to keep the, the scene in there is that um, it gives Connery a chance to display just how cool Bond is. Yeah. Um, so he gets to use uh, one of his little devices to uh, to check the phone, <laughs> and yeah. also just the way Connery moves as he as he picks up the phone, and um, and he he opens you know he he shows the the bottom of it and and determines that it's that there's a problem, and then with one really interesting gesture he throws the bed throws the phone on the bed while also holding the receiver and he just starts talking and mm-hmm. it is the most graceful move he is so cool and then he tells the uh the woman downstairs that the bed's too small <laughs> and it's just like oh my god okay all right we got it we got it the bed's too small does, or, does he? Yeah. Does yes. He, he, does he put his um, leg up on the chair in this too? Doesn't he? 
he puts his his leg is up on the bed even the bed, or, or maybe bed. it's on the chair i forget but he's like just like a pose maybe he's he's posing he's he's the coolest guy in the room and the bed's too small just like right. mm, okay we got that i i laugh out loud i just i just it just makes me crack up um i also like um the uh the fact that there have to be three people that sort of are in on the call downstairs so there's the woman yeah. at the front desk there's the manager and then there's this little old lady switchboard operator shoved in the <laughs> what is that i love that but it's just like wow the whole team is there conspiring right. um <laughs> the mission impossible team right <laughs> It kind of reminds me of a comment in the book, which uh, where Bond reflects on the uh, well-funded Russian team that's there in Istanbul, and that um, by comparison, you have uh, just uh, Kareem and his sons, and yet they are they are winning the battle, so to speak. Um, at, at any rate, I just I love the little old lady shoved in the corner. That's a wonderful touch. We believe that there is no ageism at work with Spectre, that they are an equal opportunity employer <laughs> and they welcome all into the fold. We've decided yep. that we've decided that it, that's a positive about Spectre. <laughs> so it's at least a recruiting method they use right. to get S Cynthia, people do, on board. Do you, so we've got the voice of Nikki Vanderzill again, v voicing the receptionist. And who apparently is Leslie Brookesy's wife. Uh, and this is a good place to talk about women's voices being dubbed. Because I know you have something to say about that. Well, I, you know, I actually went way, way, way down a rabbit hole on this one. Because um, I was thinking initially that it's uh, primarily, well, I mean, there's sort of two pieces. One, it's the women's voices are dubbed. Um, because I guess no woman is good enough. And so you have a body, a good body and a good voice, and you put them together and you hope that satisfies the audience. But uh, I also got to watching the film, looking closely and thinking about the fact that essentially everything has been re-recorded. And... Um, I wanted to ask you folks about that and the effect of that. So do you know about the about the the way about the sound production on these films? On this just, let's just say on this film. I just know that they shot most of the location stuff MOS and then they added dialogue in later, but here we're on the stage at Pinewood and so there must have just been a I don't know and a choice on the part of the directors that the actress needed to be dubbed or something because this isn't you know this isn't a location so I don't know what to make of it well even in the conversations between Bond and Kareem I mean I'm not entirely sure that that's live sound even when they're just sitting in their office in, in Kareem's office I don't know so they would have yeah. been requiring Amandara's to do all of his overdubbing as well. Um, maybe that's what happened after they shot at the gypsy camp and it was at the, towards the very end of his shoot and it started to rain. And so they, Young says we wouldn't have got, gotten him because he was going to leave 
in a day or two. So I, maybe the next day was overdubbing and he went in and, and overdubbed everything. I just don't know. Well, one of the things that I, I just wanted to, I mean, we know that certainly, you know, the exteriors, you know, I mean, it, like at the very end, you know, they're and they're on the boat and we hear their voices perfectly. We, we, you know, right, that, right. That's, that's obvious. But I just, I mean, one of the things that um, I, I've been reading about is the, just the convention of uh, of looping and and re-recording and the way that that post synchronization creates a, a different sense of of depth and perspective. That it on the one hand it sort of flattens the image, but it also creates a different relationship between the actors and the audience because there's no there's no sort of spatial specificity and instead there's almost a, a greater intimacy because you kind of have the actors voices in your heads yeah. almost. Yeah. Do, do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, totally. Yeah. There's sort of a, a closeness. And um, so I was just wondering, you know, if you found that happening in, in uh, this film. I think in these early ones, because there's so much overdubbing, they all kind of have this strange feeling, you know? And I, f I kind of think that as we get close, get into the 1970s, I think there's a lot more attention paid to location recording. They're still dubbing, though. Like, there's tons of overdubbing in, in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. But I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. I know that then, you know, with the 70s and 80s, there's a lot more location recording. Now we're kind of back to where we where we are mm. with this in that everything is overdubbed, especially the big blockbusters. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are constantly, to the point that even, I heard one story about Bruce Willis not wanting to come in. They wouldn't have to pay him to come in and do overdubbing. And so there's a whole bunch of industry sound-alike people that work in Hollywood. There's mm -hmm. a guy that sounds like Bruce Willis. So they hire him to come in and, and do all the overdubbing. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, this, this just opens up so many questions about um, performance and stardom and so forth. Because yeah. um, let's just let's just take a, a you know a simple question. Um, so the actors are watching themselves on the screen. Let's say let's say they're even dubbing themselves, right? So they're watching themselves on the screen and. Let's say that, I uh, mean, they feel like giving a different line reading than the sort of <laughs> general mm -hmm. ones that they were doing, you know, during during the filming. Okay, who's, <laughs> is the director always there when there's, when, you know, for, uh, you know, like in this case, I don't think so. Um, so it's just... Uh, it just it just opens up so many questions. Um, I've also been reading about uh, the the uh, way that um, there are certain uh, voice actors who are known for their voices, um, and so the person say who does who's typically did the voice for Clint Eastwood uh, is something of a celebrity himself. And his voice is completely different from Clint Eastwood's. It's, you know, <laughs> it's not all wispy and, you know, thin. It's, you know, deep and resonant. And that uh, audiences prefer his voice to Clint Eastwood's. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Edlitz, uh, who's going to be on the show in a few weeks, in his 
first book, I think it's The Many Worlds of James Bond, um, interviewed several foreign actors who were the voices of James Bond in dubbed versions, and that was so weird. <laughs> well, I hope you'll ask him about about uh, we will for sure some of this because I'm I'm really curious to to get to you know to get to a better understanding of of how this all works. Um, but what did you what do you make of the uh, various um, sort of, sort of the consistent practice of uh, of at least in the case of the the women that they have different voice artists doing their doing their work? If I were to guess, I would say that in most cases, except for Honor Blackman, in the first four, the actresses all spoke a different language as their first language, and so maybe the decision was made that you couldn't understand them well enough. I, I don't know. That would probably be my, my default. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because Daniela Bianchi has a beautiful voice. I've heard interviews with her, and mm-hmm. so it's not like she's, her voice doesn't you know match the character or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, she learned English phonetically for the movie. You can't tell by watching her face. I mean, she seems to be really comfortable and confident in, in how she's executing the lines. Right, right. I mean, I think that that's actually quite amazing to be able to, you know, make your mouth move at roughly the way it's supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it seems much more difficult than actually saying the words. Um, I think in the case of uh, Nadia Regine, um, she actually, I mean, she spoke like five languages. Um, she's the person who portrays the, uh, as described as Kareem's girl in the credits. Do um, they, is she dubbed or is that her voice? She's dubbed too. Huh. That's weird. So. <sighs> it's the patriarchy. It's either the patriarchy or it's, um, <laughs> it's just um, a very particular Peter Hunt who's, part of the patriarchy well mitch mitch was it you you were saying earlier that they like this concept of cobbling together the perfect woman out of you know you get the perfect body and then get the perfect voice and that's just what they they think they're just like well we could you know their attitude towards women could could have been just well yeah sure we just get what looks the best and sounds the best and we put them together with no sense of respect for the performer themselves peter hunt has complained about her walk which I just think is so bizarre on on the commentaries about not liking the way that Daniele Bianchi walked and having to cut around it, and it's, it's really strange. Yeah, it's a rough life out there. <laughs> Should we go to the next sequence? I, let's talk about Grant and uh, Cleb in the car, right? Isn't that well, basically one of, where we're... Yeah, one of the things that I do really I do find very amusing is that. Um, You've got Connery and Armandaris and even the person who plays Armandaris's son moving very uh, gracefully and crisply in this really sort of light, professional fashion. Uh, when um, Robert Shaw, that's his name, he, who plays Grant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when he gets, he, he, you know, he rushes and parks the car. So he's all hurried where these guys, other guys are not parks the car and he gets out and I, 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 it's like he walks pigeon toed. It's a real awkward sort of boxy walk. And then the car that he gets into that has Kleb is this drab green thing 
with um oh it's been in an accident so uh there's sort of still some paint that's you know left from halfway finished body work uh-huh. i don't know if you noticed that yeah and it's but it's mm-hmm. got the squares on it too so i wasn't sure whether that was a taxi symbol or whether this was like a a taxi that they got or or what it just cracked me up uh, it's that weird blue turquoisey color too it's yeah, not... it's really it's really drab. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought that was that was really quite telling um, a real attention to detail, I think, on on Terrence Young's part and the actors, too. I mean, they all knew what they were, what their jobs were. And uh, and then we're back to the the, the the crazy, the the intruding music when the body drops out of the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like a big sting. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice the placement of the actors in the back of that taxi that I thought it was really interesting how Robert Shaw is in the foreground and doesn't say anything. So your eye goes to him first. She, but who who's doing all the work in the scene uh, with with her crazy glasses and everything? <laughs> uh, Lottie Lenya is in the background. So she's carrying the scene, but she's been placed in the background. He's in the foreground and not doing anything. I thought it was an interesting choice well, to balance it that way. I don't think he's not doing anything exactly. What's interesting to me about this, that little mini scene is that, you know, she's all full of energy. Ah, yes, our plan is coming together. They will soon be blaming the Russians, all this stuff, or soon, soon be blaming the English. And he looks like he just ate a turkey sandwich or something. Like he's, he kind of nods off a little bit in a way that's kind of interesting. I'm not suggesting he really nods off. He's disinterested in, the machinations of the plan, I think. He's like, I just did my thing, my brute force thing. Go, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm glad you're excited about that, but I'm going to like chill for a little bit over here. I'm going to be, he's like mellowed out like he's post, post-violence, post like a mellow phase or something. I don't know what it is, but I think it's a choice. Yeah, absolutely, John. I think you've described it really well. And that's, that's one of the things that I thought was really uh, captured really well from the, the way it's described in the novel, because uh, he his character doesn't care about anything except killing. That's mm-hmm. really the only thing that interests him. The only time that he seems to have a little life in him is when he starts to put on those black gloves, and he's kind of like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, he just is a lug. He's bored. He's absolutely just nothing he doesn't care um he also comes to life when there's a full moon as we've discussed multiple times right <laughs> i do think that uh cleb slash lottie lania is is i think she's kind of kind of cute and certainly is far less gross than she is described in the book definitely yeah. uh i'm sure you talked about that we're really glad that it didn't go there yeah <laughs> if if robert aldrich had been directing this movie it would have gone there but thankfully we have terrence young yes 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 um i um i do like uh the uh the the next moment where we go into the the scene of the istanbul uh minarets and the domed buildings and and the muslim call to prayer i kind of like this 1960s 
um, here, take time to look at our location scene. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, the travelogue aspect of these movies. Mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. as a as a kid seeing them in central Kansas, I got it. You know, this is the wide world out there, and this is as close as I'm going to get to it until I get out of here. Oh, absolutely. And then there's also, this is another one of the times where there's this dissolve, which then goes into... Um, <laughs> the sacred and the profane yes <laughs> from from the mm-hmm. mosque and called a prayer to a shot where we are actually being invited to look down her dress i mean she's yes. upside down in the frame Which, that we're yeah yeah i mean i i, I laugh <laughs> um it's pretty profane yeah uh, it's hardly subtle um which is actually <laughs> one of the we've talked about this one of the wonders of the bond films is how unsubtle they are um. <laughs> but you know that's that Mike Nichols line right movies don't do subtle well that's what nope. Mike Nichols decided that movies do obvious really well but they don't do subtle well <laughs> so lean into the obvious yeah talking about the way things have, are, are sort of reshuffled yeah. um, the scene that we witness is one that's actually something that's just described in the novel and right. uh, it happens before Bond gets there mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And it also uh, allows uh, Kareem Bay to make the joke that that the girl found his technique too violent, as opposed to that line going to Bond. Maybe we'll make John feel a little bit better. Probably not. But according <laughs> to the book, she is a Romanian spy. And so he's trying to get her to give him information you know or she's trying to get information from him by offering sex and so he's taking her up on this game and he's just using her because she doesn't know he she doesn't realize he knows she's already a a spy right exactly so in the book there's the 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 people involved in that little scene which is a not shown instead recounted all have some some agency they're there for a reason she's a spy trying to get money and he's uh, trying to get information and, and he's there to, you know, play along and, you know, enjoy life. And that's a lot more palatable than this notion of her just being the secretary that's just, you know, laying around saying, you know, when are you going to come over here? You know, it's it's yeah, nothing of what you guys said plays in the scene. <laughs> I, well, know. I know. I know. They, I know. They screwed all. it up. I think yes. they really screwed it up. They did. Yeah, I agree with you, Cynthia. It's terrible. It's, I mean, as soon as she starts saying his full name over and over again, it's immediately grating. It's like, what is this? You're just making this character as obnoxious as possible to him. And then he he can't stand her, it seems to me. And uh, and then he's like, well, off to the salt mine. It's like, what? I don't even, what you said gives that something. There's something to it. But in this case, I'm like, wait, we were just like we were talking about, and you just said he's a uh, he's a bon vivant. He loves life. He likes to enjoy things. He doesn't like people that don't. So why is he so why is he so down about this? Well, it's the only strange. thing I can think, John, is that um, either as directed or as self directed, that Armandars is trying to squeeze in a whole bunch of backstory, which is that um, he tells Bond during their. Uh, one of their long conversations that this whole spy business is really uh, it's really not good for lovemaking. 
right? Mm. It's too much blood to the head and not enough blood to the important parts of the body. <laughs> and so, so that's, you know, that this, this whole spy business, reading these files and having to strategize really gets in the way of things. And that, and then he also tells Bond, he gives Bond the advice that um, he really should, um, he should be, uh, he shouldn't chase after Tatiana or be too available. He has to be indifferent and, in fact, almost insolent and let mm-hmm. her come to him and let her make the, the in, you know, the first moves. So... Again, I, I'm 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 really I'm really uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that's I mean, from a, the other positive, the only other positive I can find would be that it is yet another signal of female desire, and this mm-hmm. whole movie is very much about females being allowed desire, and and so I thought that's kind of interesting. Um, that sounds like an apology, which it probably is. But the other thing is, what's a 10-year-old boy to make of this scene? <laughs> I mean, it's confusing. Right. It's I mean, it was very confusing to me when I saw this movie when I was like 10 or 11. And these movies were made for, quote-unquote, family audiences on one hand, right? They wanted to sell merchandise to the kids. and then, But it's loaded with these messages that are that are really confusing. I mean, again, I got to ask, what's the purpose of of the scene uh, as far as how it, it fits into this particular movie? And I'm thinking about, you just mentioned Mike Nichols. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, Mike Nichols' old and Elaine May's old thing about every scene has to be a negotiation, a seduction, or a fight, right? But I can't decide which one this is. <laughs> like, it's supposed to be a seduction, but it kind of feels like a negotiation that he's fighting against. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure what the purpose of... The scene is and in the end it's just okay the bomb goes off at the end and she's scared off which ruins kind of ruins even if I tried to believe the you know I, I believe that it's in the book but if I tried to say in my head okay she's probably a spy well I don't believe it anymore if she ran off scared from this bomb uh, so I don't know why why not just mid coitus or something like why why have this whole weird seduction-esque thing happen beforehand I just not sure what it contributes uh, to the scene uh, or mid coitus though would never have flown with the production office. Well, you know what I mean in bed. No, but that's what I mean. I'm not that's even what... sure whether I don't know. No, what do you, you can't. Well, no, no. We see Bond. We, we see we, Bond we see in see bed a... finally, but it, it takes an hour to get there. If, if I don't know, well, just anything. I'm. I mean, in media stress. There we go. It's it's something that's happening already. If you need to have him with her, why have this whole seduction happen beforehand? That's really. I don't know. It's just distasteful to me, and it doesn't really have a point to it at all. And and what I think, Mitch, to answer your question, for a 10-year-old boy, you know, I, I don't remember seeing this when I was 10 years old, but I'm sure I would have gotten the wrong idea about how to treat women mm-hmm. from this, to be honest with you. it's I, I know that because I did get the wrong idea about how to treat women from a lot of movies mm-hmm. that had scenes like this. And it was like, yeah, act like you're too cool for her and act like she's bothering you, you know, and, and – right sort of this like sense of superior sexual superiority over a woman that certainly the only thing I can get out of the, what, what the scene is trying to say. I appreciate your dis- disgust. <laughs> 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 I, 
I've been thinking about how much of this film is designed to make Bond look cool at the expense of everyone else. And, you know, it didn't have to go that way. I mean, for example, in the book, Karim Bey is not shot when, they're, when the gypsies are attacked, but he is shot uh, in the movie. The way the uh, assassination of Krilenko plays out, it makes Karim Bey seem sort of, just sort of belatedly wants to do it, whereas in the book, he's, it's Bond who's kind of freaking out about this is cold-blooded murder. And so I guess uh, there's something about the way that this film is designed to be focused on making Bond look invincible and everyone else look kind of silly. So is that the sidekick trope, basically, reducing them? Yeah, I just think it's the, the women look silly, Kareem Bay looks silly. And again, it didn't have to be like that because... Bond is fine. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, is it? are we back to the subtlety issue again? Like, we really need Bond to be the man in this movie. Therefore, push everybody else down a little bit more to make sure he really stands out as the man yeah. in this movie. Yeah. And it's it's what we talked about as far as subtlety. There is none. They don't do that. So I have a <laughs> so. question for you. If if when we first saw the girl leaving Kareem Bay's office, right, when we back a few minutes before right. before these minutes uh and kareem bay had said to james bond she's a russian she's a romanian spy but she doesn't know i know right so we would have set it up that way do you think that the censors would have had more trouble with that kind of an acknowledgement i mean you could do it now and you could probably do it by the time you get to thunderball but i wonder it would be okay. I mean, mm-hmm. Tatiana's a, a, <laughs> a spy of some sort. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just wondered. It would have been an easy fix. Yeah, I, yeah, what? Good. Yeah, I think that would have been, that would have helped a lot. Or if they had at least made in that scene, if they'd made Kareem Bay, uh, rather than him being gruff, if he had been sort of amused or, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of cool that he's got a bed in his office. I mean, that alone, I'm I'm like, okay. And he calls it his settee. His settee. So, I was going to say, but, you know, in, in technically it's a, a settee. Yeah, in the book, too, yeah. <laughs> Did you notice the color of the explosion? That crazy magenta? Which, that, yes. It's the same color that's on the rocks in Dr. No. In the in Doctor No's lair, and it's on Star Trek too. It was must have been just a hip '60s color, but there I can't think of any kind of explosion that would have given that color off. Well, so I wanted to ask you. I mean, the things that explode just uh, behind the the two actors. I mean, that's a, that's a mechanical effect there, right? Right. So and then they shake the camera. Yeah. Star Trek. And, and they, then, then they that, like have the actors fall out of the frame and hit it with that silly silly magenta light yeah and then they and then they cut to this shot with no people in it that is the lamest table fall it collapses on one corner and they blow some smoke in and they're shaking the camera and that felt a little rushed to me yeah 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 so question we've got a fade out and a fade in yes How what about do you guys that? make of that what do you think john what do you think that one's that one's trickier like, I really think you don't get away with that now. 
<laughs> you know, that's one of those. It's definitely an old fashioned classic film sort of transition there. But I don't know why you do that here. Uh, God, I'm racking my brain right now just to come up with any so kind of an answer. If you didn't get the fade, what would you have to do? If you didn't fade out and, and weren't going to be able to fade back up, so you have to imply a time cut and mm-hmm. you're in the same location. So you either have to turn everything around and maybe show Bond, you know, coming in through the front door or something and stopping and looking around and seeing all of the carnage and continuing. Because if you were just to do a time cut from the same location to Bond in the room already, it would be Mm -hmm. it would be bumpy, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm, Could be. Yeah. See, I I would, uh, Mitch, I would wipe to Bond walking into the room. Okay. Give, give it a little bit of a uh, give it a little bit of momentum. Like uh, okay, ver- now vertical, the action's picking up. Vertical, horizontal, or diagonal? Wipe no, horizontal uh, or sorry, uh, vertical wipe because he'll be walking in. I like the idea that you know the wipe follows. We're him. just kind of like moving him into the okay. room mm. with the wipe, and then uh, and then we're telling the audience, okay, things are picking up now. You know that's why I usually use wipes and screenplays because I'm indicating, okay, things are picking up now. Just so you know, like we're moving from scenes <laughs> yeah. this way. Just so you know that. Uh, so that's what I might do because I want to. I mean, the truth though is that wouldn't fit this movie probably, despite the fact that there has been a wipe earlier. Oh, he, it's a very strange he, one. He wiped in Doctor No all the time. Like, I'm, yeah, but this movie is. Uh, you're right. Has a different feet tone and a and a different pace to it yeah. than Doctor No or Goldfinger and pretty much any of the other Bond movies of the of the Connery era. Uh, so I don't know if that would have worked in this movie, but you know, I would want. I just love. I just have the fascination with wipes. Being a Kurosawa fan and a Star Wars fan, I think is probably where that all comes from. But um, <laughs> Do, are we are we left with a semi cliffhanger by not showing uh, an inventory yeah. shot of dead bodies or them wipe, but you know, getting up and dusting themselves off, just going out on that table, falling over and fading out? Maybe we think Kareem's dead. I guess there's there could be that. I mean, that's the old film noir thing, right? You usually, you're doing it with your lead, though is uh, the fade-out, fade-in happens when uh, you get slipped the Mickey, right? Earlier in the, at some point in the yeah. midpoint of the movie. In this case, we could be doing it with him and saying, okay, we don't know where they're going to wake up uh, when we come back or, or or what condition he's going to be in or what Bond's going to find. If we fade into Bond and he's looking down at him on the floor or whatever it could be. Ooh, I, yeah, you're, I like you're, that You're one. leaving the audience with a moment to think about what's going to happen next, so I guess there could be some value in that. That's a good one, John. Go from the fade out to fade up, and it's Kareem's point of view looking at Bond, looking down mm-hmm. on him, kind of the opposite of pussy galore looking down on Bond <laughs> and Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. I love it. Thanks, for, Cynthia. Thank you for these transitions. Hey, See, Cynthia, you want to come and over and watch like... some Kurosawa movies with John and me? It's great. <laughs> Mitch and I are transition <laughs> well, fetishists. Have, like, we love to talk about this I stuff. grew up, well, I mean, I, I, yeah. Well, see, we all seem to have come from the same part of the universe because you notice what I'm, I mean, I'm noticing the same yeah. sorts of things that you guys are looking at. So, yeah. So, you know, you know, partly to your point, John, about moving things along, I feel like the actors are having to do all the work to keep it moving. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that really struck me in watching this, you know, set of minutes. If you didn't have people who moved gracefully and uh, had a certain kind of intrinsic charm, I think the thing would just fall flat. Yeah. Because um, really, you know, Bond comes in, he comes zipping in, not too fast, not too slow, but, you know, a man with a purpose. And uh, Armandaris is, uh, 
is all business and he's moving things around and he's dusting things off. And then as he's talking, he's still moving and is really focused and he spends his time uh, folding his handkerchief and putting it back in his pocket like he's putting things back in order. And Bond is sort of behind him, you know, talk about the way things are 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 staged. You know, Bond is Bond is still kind of clueless, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah, think yeah. it has something to do with me. And it's, it's <laughs> and it's Kareem Bay who says, Well, let's try and find out. And he quickly leads Bond out and they're off to their next adventure. And he he leaves he leaves Connery in the frame. He's that he moves that fast, <laughs> which, again, is quite amazing because, I mean, you know, I we haven't even really talked about this, the whole situation of him getting the diagnosis and being in extreme pain. But, yeah, I think at this point you can almost see him covering up a limp. I don't yeah, he, know. He limps. Yeah, he's definitely limping. He's in pain. Yeah. Yeah. So to be to be the character who is described as um I don't know there's a great phrase in the in the novel that um Bond describes him as something like um yeah who carried the sun with him I mean I don't know how you how you portray the character who carries <laughs> the sun with you how while you, you also <laughs> are in excruciating pain yeah. But he did it. Yeah. I just think yeah. it's amazing. He really does. He is radiant. He's 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 such an amazing actor. That guy. He um, really is. So, um, do you think that there's this um, vestigial thing left over, despite everything that the filmmakers might be trying to do, from the book, which is just this sense in the book that Fleming is interested in everybody else more than he's interested in James Bond. And it seems like maybe that's just kind of a holdover, you know. They can't escape it. Hmm. Everybody else is driving the driving the show pretty much, and everybody else has more interesting attitudes, backstories, observations in the book. And Bond's the least interesting character. Well, you guys know that I went completely off the deep end thinking about Doctor No, and uh, uh, you know he. <laughs> He's way more interesting than Bond. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's well, a later book too, right? Doctor No in the in the chronology follows right, follows right. from Russia with Love, and so he's um, he's probably still working out those same ambivalent feelings. Well, now in terms of the villains, see, Grant is not is interesting. Um, I don't think. I guess I guess that's a thing that I guess that's why at least for this film my attention goes to Kareem Bay rather than the bad guys because the bad guys all just seem kind of yeah. ugly and frumpy. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. He's like he is the highlight of the book, I think. Yeah, I think Kareem Bay's the guy. Um, which is why they have to adjust and make the movie about Sean Connery. Yeah. Um. It puts a lot of pressure on the machinations of the Spectre double cross. And there's just a lot of other things that are kind of moving the story along other than James Bond. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think particularly in this film, which is why I'm just kind of I'm just curious. Why do you think that this this novel was the uh, was Kennedy's favorite? I mean, 
Bond is the most passive, right? So is the is it is it that it's Kennedy's favorite, or it was one of his favorite books at the time that he put a reading list together? I don't uh-huh. even know whether Kennedy read mm-hmm. all of the Bond books. I see know? what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. I think they very shrewdly spun its appearance on his list as a major, you know, selling point. That's a good point. Well, that's why they made the film, right? That's why yeah. they chose to make. Yeah, that's why it was. It was the one they chose. Hmm. Plus, it was a logical step up. I think that's the other thing that I thought, think is so interesting as as choices go. Like, it's. I'm glad they made this movie and didn't make Goldfinger next, because this established sort of the second part of the formula, which has to do with sex, sex and desire, and and real spy works, and not just comic book kind of, you know, mm. Fu Manchu boys adventure stuff. Mm. Yeah. Reed snorkels and things like that. Yeah, yeah, you need Reed snorkels. Or something. <laughs> yeah, we got the Reed snorkels, Johnny Quest style action in the first one, and this is the more John Le Carre style. Mm. Uh, and then we start getting the blend, right, uh, as we go along. It gets cartoonier again, but uh, there's that sweet spot, which is Goldfinger and Thunderball and then it gets cartoony in a good way to me, and you only live twice. This all makes sense. And then pulled back to Earth with Honor mm-hmm. Majesty's Secret Service. Yep. So there is this thing that swings back and forth between the comic book fantasy Bond and the more spy-ish Bond. And it, they, they do seem to know when to rein it back in. As soon as it gets too outlandish, they decide, well, it's got to come back to something a little more realistic. So it makes and, sense. And they ran out of books at a certain point, too. <laughs> so then they had to really start to figure out how they're going to calibrate that pendulum swing. Right, right. Do you want to go down into the... into the, uh, into the the um... Yeah, let's go to the sewers. All right. Let's go to the sewers, everybody. <laughs> Which was a real location. And they, uh-huh. they had a rope under the boat to pull it along because Pedro wasn't really doing that rowing. And everything was shot, as you said earlier, you know, without without sound. So they had to overdub everything. It is, um, again, sort of back to that earlier point. It is uh, about about the actors moving things along. I do like to see the two of them come down the stairs in their still in their gray suits and their with their little white handkerchiefs in their pockets and their black ties and both character and actors. They're both perfectly game ready to uh to go on to the the next adventure and are excited excited is not the word interested in the next adventure there's a nice little moment when uh armandaris uh tosses the flashlight to bond um i don't know if you if you notice that and there's just he's just he's just uh here and he tosses it and it's just it's uh it's very it's a very small moment but um the two of them are working well together. Yeah. They're they're um, definitely a team. And it's it's uncomplicated and it's efficient and uh and they're classy. You know, they just get right into the boat and they take, you know, Karim Bay takes charge and off they go and you know, we go off to to the to the next thing and I just uh I was just again thinking about how 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 did he manage to even get in the boat <laughs> or get down those <laughs> yeah. stairs. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this is a really experienced actor 
But you do you know you know that he was he was known as the uh, the Clark Gable of Mexican cinema. I'd never heard the Clark Gable analogy, but I knew he was he was a, a very popular romantic lead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he's you know he really he was absolutely crucial to uh, the golden age of uh, Mexican cinema. And uh, the first Mexican film to show at at uh, the Cannes Film Festival is uh, Maria Candelaria, which he stars in. And that year it it won the Palme d'Or. And he, in collaboration with co-star Dolores Del Rio and director Emilio Fernandez, and then also um, cinematographer uh, Gabriel Figueroa, were sort of the A-team. Yeah, that's definitely the A-team. Have you seen the picture? Pardon me? Have you seen that movie? Oh yes, I have. It's yeah, wonderful. I never have. Is, 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 is it good? Yeah. Oh, it's a, uh, it's uh it's you. You should see it. It's I w- yeah, um, I will. It's it's a combination of uh, I don't know Visconti and Eisenstein. Um, it's pretty wonderful. I also spent uh, time watching um, some of uh, the uh, uh, American films from the '40s that he made. This is a really fascinating time the relationship between between Hollywood and uh, Mexican cinema in the 1940s there's a lot of uh, going back and forth uh, both in terms of talent and and financing and there were a number of uh, dual language films made which is partly how Almendarez came back to the United States I knew that about Dracula but I, I didn't I don't know any other movies that were shot in both are you saying that american productions that shot in spanish or are you saying mexican productions that shot in both languages well it's really complicated to say whether they're mexican or american because there's such a uh, a tight combination of financing and talent that it's mm-hmm. they're they're really they really are transnational productions um and you've got John Ford as an important figure in all of this. Uh, and so you've got him doing independent films uh, at this time, whether he's shooting in Mexico or uh, collaborating with uh, Emil, uh, Emilio Fernandez on projects. I mean, I had, I had thought that the 1940s and the good neighbor policy promoted films were really only uh, Carmen Miranda musicals mm-hmm. but actually there were a number of uh, of art films that were that were made so for example the pearl uh which won a major award at the venice film festival was one of those productions which was released both in english and in spanish and starred armandaris and uh yeah, if you ever do get a chance uh, to watch, uh, there's there are three John Ford films with uh, with Armandaris either as a lead or as one of the secondary players. He himself was biracial and bilingual and bicultural, growing up on both sides of the of the border. And in fact, he probably would have stayed in the U.S. had he not been, had it not been the Depression and the whole period of uh, Mexican repatriation in the early 1930s. 
late mm-hmm. 1930s, uh, late, late 1920s, early 1930s. Do you know about this? No, uh-uh. Oh, it's fascinating. It's it's one of the pieces that's of, of history that we, we don't ever get told. Um, he was, uh, you know, he was just one of the many people who either voluntarily or uh, or not by choice was deported, whether uh, you were an, an American citizen or or not. Um, Mexican Americans were uh, whisked out of the U.S. The numbers are very different. Uh, they range from 400,000 to 2 million people uh, who are who are Mexican American being taken out of the U.S. Um, between 1929 and 1936. That's a lot of people. Yeah, that really is between and, 29 uh, and 36. So, what was the rationale? Well, because they were taking jobs. That was the rationale. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he's a smart guy. You know, he had just gotten his uh, bachelor's degree in engineering from uh, San Luis Obispo. He's like, no. Uh, and he was actually taking, uh, he was actually going to go to law school at UCLA. And, uh, and he was doing theater there also. And uh, he just up and left. You know, he's like, I don't, this is not a good idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, he was working as a tour guide in, in uh, Mexico City, I think. It's Mexico City. At any rate, and he was discovered because, of course, he was incredibly handsome and mm-hmm. incredibly uh, uh, charismatic. And um, so starts in the movies in the, in the mid-1930s and was a leading man in scores of films. He's got something like 128 credits, many of them leading roles. That's, wow. that's, a, that's quite a career. That's amazing. Um, so this was just one of many of his 1960s uh, assignments. Uh, he's in Italian films, French mm-hmm. films. Uh, in 1956, he's uh, John Wayne's uh, brother in The Conqueror, which I think is quite, mm. quite interesting. And it's at that point, of course, where he, along with other, some 90 other people on that shoot, uh, were exposed to radioactive material, which then led to his cancer. All for a lousy movie. Oh, I like know, which conqueror. never should have I mean, been made. <laughs> I mean, it's just adding insult to injury. Is, is oh, I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Good Lord. All right. Well, I think that, do you have any other, any final thoughts? Uh, we've kept you for 80 minutes, so. Well, I'm the one who had to, you know, share all the things about the, the wonders of uh, Pedro Armendariz. So, uh, See, I knew that was what you were going to do. That's why we sort of waited because we <laughs> thought you were going to be the one that was going to school us on him. So I anyway, really, we really appreciate it. And um, though John Ford movies, by the way, were th- the three Godfathers, Ford Apache. Is that yes. right? And then what's the third yeah. one? The Fugitive, which is a very oh. strange one. You've got Henry Fonda playing a priest, a Mexican priest. And uh, here again, Armandar's performance is really complicated because he is supposed to be the bad guy. And so narratively, he is the bad guy. And yet, somewhere between the way it's shot and directed and performed, 
his character is much more complicated uh, and actually more interesting than Henry Fonda's character. So that's one I haven't seen, so I'll have to put that on the list. Yeah, is it is that a Fox? Is that one of Ford's Fox films? Mm, I'm not sure. I know that a lot of these were RKO films. Um, I know. I've seen three. I like Three Godfathers quite a bit. Ford Apache's good. I've never seen The Fugitive, though, and I'm trying to figure out if it was a... I can't see my... Don't you have that Ford Ford Fox? Yeah, I have the box, but it's not not where I can grab it, so I'll have to check it. I don't know if that's where it was made either, so... Interesting. Ford Apache is a strange one. I really had to try to wrap my mind around Armandar's as Sergeant Beaufort, who had fought uh, for the Confederates in the Civil War. (laughs) I'm like, how, wait, how does that happen? But I do like the scene where he translates uh, the words of Cochise, who's played by another Mexican actor. I think that that's really quite interesting. And I, I, like, like, seeing, I, like, I like seeing John Wayne and uh, Pedro Amandar's, uh galloping around. Yeah. I think they make a good pair. I got to thinking about how uh, Armandaris does a good job as a as a second second lead secondary character mm-hmm. uh, because he he doesn't upstage the the star, but he also holds his own and he does it with Sean Connery and he does it with John Wayne also. I think that's quite interesting. It's what Claude Rains could always do. Oh, Claude. He's such you a know? great actor. He's such, but he, but, it, but he just he shines in the in the second lead parts. You know, there's not a lot of movies where he's the lead that get me very excited. But he's always great as yeah. the second second lead. Well, Armandaris also in you know of course in the in Mexican uh, cinema films he's he's the lead and he he pulls he's the, good, that yeah. off. He yeah. he's very good at all that. I will say that. Uh, Quickly, The Fugitive, Fort Apache, and Three Godfathers were all RKO, all made in uh, consecutively, and all produced by Marion C. Cooper as well. They were all kind of a, of a, kind of a troupe. It seems like they had a bit of a production and uh, acting troupe going there. What were the, the three? What you said, The Fugitive, The th- Fugitive, Three Godfathers, and, and Fort, Fort Apache, Apache, all RKO, okay. all RKO, all, all Marion Cooper productions. Well, this is also, you know, this is this is Ford trying to, you know, do independent work. It's really quite an interesting time. I mean, I think that there's a a number of uh, of films. There's even ones that look at the Haitian Revolution that come out in the late '40s, early '50s. There were a lot of fellow travelers in in Hollywood at this period of time, yeah, um, who were really who were really interested mm-hmm. in, in making films that were not exactly like the ones they'd been making during the studio era. It's kind of an interesting time. Yeah. Well, it's some, many of them were veterans, you know, people that, uh, you know, with, between Ford and then you have your John Houston was clearly interested in foreign uh, lands as well and tra- well-traveled man. It's interesting. You kind of wonder if there's a correlation there. I think that's got to be part of it. Service. I think yeah. that's got to be part of it. Um, somewhere along the line, Amandaris worked with John Huston, and I'm just not remembering. I'm just not remembering the title of the film. Oh, wait, we were strangers, 1949. Mm, I don't know that one. There's some really uh, 
good work being done on the connections between um, Hollywood and uh, and Mexican cinema during this during this time. And I'm super excited to learn more about it. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been great having you on. Yeah. I always I was really looking forward to this, and it's always great to see what you bring. I always learn something. Well, I really appreciate you guys uh, prompting me to to look at things. Well, thanks for listening again, folks, uh, to this week's episode of 007 by 7 We will uh, we are over on uh, on Twitter, of course. You can follow us there, the 007 by 7 podcast. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash alien minute if you want to come over and listen to some of our supplemental episodes. It's only $2 a month. So thanks again for joining us, Cynthia, and hopefully you'll come back and do Goldfinger. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. You guys are great. <laughs>